Take a network break, grab a virtual donut, and join us for our weekly scamper through the fields of IT news. We've got stories today on a new Broadcom ASIC, a networking startup, ISPs versus the US state of Maine, space networking, and more. We're sponsored today by IP Fabric. IP Fabric recently announced an EMA research report discussing the future of data center network automation, and it revealed that more than half of organizations that use manual data gathering processes feel it undermines their automation efforts. That's where IP Fabric comes in. IP Fabric puts the right data in the hands of the people who need it. Download the full report now for free at ipfabric.io slash packetpushers to help you as you brainstorm your next network automation strategy. That's ipfabric.io slash packetpushers. Uh, and if you like the network break, check out our other podcasts, including Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, Full Stack Journey, and our newest Kubernetes Unpacked. It's nerdy tech analysis and compelling conversations about infrastructure, cloud, professional development, and more. It's all at packetpushers.net. All right, Greg, let's get into the news. First, ASIC maker Broadcom has announced the new Trident 4C. This is a 12.8 terabit per second chip that targets enterprise data centers, and it also includes a dedicated analytics engine. It can be used to inspect packets and flows for anomalies that may indicate attacks like DDoS attacks, port scans, data exfiltration, and other threats. Yeah, so there's not a, a whole lot here in the sense that the Trident 4 has been around for a while and we've talked about it, but the Trident is now what Broadcom positions as the enterprise chipset. We yeah. talked, was it a month ago? We were talking about the Tomahawk, which they said to sort of just implies. A weeks ago. Yeah, they put out a new yeah. Tomahawk as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Broadcom is releasing, generally aiming to do a two year release cycle on these ASICs. So we're seeing all of those chips get refreshed and, and people driving into them. So the Trident is sort of mostly, now that's not to say that. A, a switch is a switch is a switch. It's all one network. It really doesn't matter. But the ASIC is the engine inside. I think that the biggest takeaway about this one was there's a there's the performance boost, although 12.8 terabits per second isn't particularly fast, but it's it's there. I think the real thing that it, that it's capable of is this deep packet inspection and logging. Previous generations of the ASICs have only been able to do sampled monitoring, so one in 10,000 flows and um, you can't really do high fidelity every single packet straight out to to a database type stuff. Mm -hmm. And really, that's what this is about, is that they've now got the capability because of the dedicated analytics engine to say, I can monitor all connections running through the switch, and therefore I can now put security applications that run with a full visibility into the data flow, not sampled, not you know, near enough is good enough, which is where we've been for the last... Uh, since the performance blew past uh, 10 gigabit, really. Right. This is really where we need to be for observability and really detailed security. So that that's really, the, I think, the takeaway that you want is if you're thinking of a switch as a security appliance, up until now, none of the switches really had the performance to be able to do it. Uh, now, when I say performance, I meant the ability to track flows, the ability to capture every packet and provide that information. And this switch, the Trident 4-X11C, Handy naming convention, don't you That's think? That's right. Very clear. <laughs> Very clear. It can handle 5.4 billion packets per second and track 500,000 concurrent connections. And that's the sort of numbers we're talking about. Yeah, it's pretty good. And without mm. impacting switch performance, because it is a dedicated analytics engine, you know, sort of off to the side of the actual switching ASIC. So you run that without mm. having to worry about uh, impacting your just switching throughput. I will say, though, uh, we should be careful about this. Broadcom is relying entirely on security third parties to do mm -hmm. any kind of uh, inspection or analysis security related. Uh, and the way that works is that the third party would come in, use its own signature libraries and program this analytics engine uh, with their own libraries to do the detection and then shunt those uh, flows or packets to get flagged off to a third party collector. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and as of the announcement being released, Broadcom hasn't actually announced which security third parties they're working with. So it's uh, yeah. up in the air at this point. But the capability is there if someone wants to come along and take advantage of it. Yeah. So if you think about Intel's Tofino and their fully programmable forwarding engine, there are stories of companies using that as a security device. So that is firewall threat management and monitoring, blocking, permitting, and all that sort of stuff mm -hmm. because it has the ability. This chip is in that vein. So you now have the capability to do, you know, 12.5, 25 terabits per second of Ethernet switching, but now you've also got the ability to step up and start using the programmable feature. So I don't, this, my sense of this is that Broadcom in the past has always just focused on producing for the mass market, which is, you know, 48 ports of 25 gig and, you know, all that sort of stuff, or 48 mm -hmm. ports of 100 gig, whatever it is that makes sense for it and build it to a price point where it's appealing enough to most people. So sort of the 80, 20 rule, right. but there's not so much happening in this space. Now the cloud scale providers don't need this. They're doing it, doing these types of features in a different way. And I'm not so sure I actually see a need for this. How many people need are going to load security engines in into the switch. So are we going to see firewalls with a Trident 4 chip inside that's actually doing the inspection and the capture to be able to go to multi-gigabit, you know, or or 12 terabit inspection profiles? Is that what we're looking at, do you think? I think it's more about you've, you know, in your data center, you sort of got your security zone at the data center edge that's doing the inspection. And then once the traffic gets into, you know, that, that east-west uh, flow, you're not necessarily getting security visibility. So by putting some security inspection capabilities mm directly onto the switches, you have a little bit more observability, observability about potential threats in that sort of blind spot of east-west. Um, mm -hmm. And I should be clear, Broadcom's not talking about, you know, load firewall software onto this uh, analytics engine. It's just like um, we can partner with somebody who does DDoS detection, will run their signature library on this and then shunt the packets out to mm -hmm. their collector for more detailed inspection. It does, it's not doing any remediation either. So it's not yeah. Uh, uh, making decisions about what traffic should go where other than just regular switching. It's not making uh, security remediation decisions. It's just, we can do analytics on the switch to get you better visibility for that east-west blind spot. Yeah. Which has been the gap in Broadcom's products for a while. There are other chipsets out there that do that better. And there has been various attempts to do this by hijacking the B cams or the T cams or, you know, using HBMs and and, and all sorts of, you know, trade-offs in the ASICs. Mm -hmm. And we're now seeing... Broadcom start to realize that there's a gap in the market here and that the design time and so forth to give the deeper packet programming capability, this feels like a step down a pathway to a much more programmable ASIC architecture, um, you know, basically, and a competitive response to what Intel's done with Tofino, I think. Right. Uh, it's using NPL uh, as the programming language for this analytics engine, um, whereas Tofino is using... Um, uh, P4, like P4, yeah, P4, which is yeah. an open language. Uh, and so, and we know Broadcom is pretty protective of its SDK, so I don't mm. necessarily see them cracking that open. Uh, yeah. But this yeah. analytics engine sitting off to the side, maybe they'll be more welcome, more open to, you know, other people. Obviously, they are with this NPL, people coming in to do some programming, but it's not mm. on the ASIC itself. Yeah, one interesting thing was that they talked about layer two, Mac learning rates, which was interesting. We don't not often think about Mac learning in modern data center designs because we have L3 a lot of the time now and we don't sort of look backwards. But this ASIC 
can learn up to 100,000 MAC stations or 100,000 MAC addresses per second, <laughs> which in the case of a flood event, like where there's a, um, a broadcast flood, you actually want that uh, right. to be able to sort of cope with it and then mitigate it. Because yep. what happens is that a lot of the time these broadcast floods get, get into a runaway and if the switch can't cope, it actually blows up or reboots or locks or wedges or whatever you want to call it. Uh-huh. And so if they can learn at a very high rate, they can then reduce the flooded traffic to unintended destinations. So instead of, you know, creating massive broadcast loops, it feels a bit like better late than never, but, you know, um, <laughs> if you've got the need, you know, <laughs> could have used that a few years ago. Right, it's 2022 feature, and we should have, but yes. Uh, yeah. Yes, And another max. thing they pointed out is that they've changed the uh, architecture for Trident in chassis to use IO expanders. Now these IO expanders can now go out on the line card. So you can use a Trident 4 in the back of a campus style chassis, which seems to still be popular. And um, these IO expanders mean that you have low cost line cards in there and they have 48 by 25 gig ports on them, for example, right? Uh-huh. And you can have up to eight cores. So there's these 50 gig uh, IO modules out there and they run MacSec on those expanders. So now you can actually run MacSec quite independently of the ASIC and therefore much closer to where the actual Ethernet is. So you don't get so many loops back, uh, uh, feedback loops in the system because quite often, you know, you'd have something coming in, there'd be an event on the MacSec or on the Ethernet port to go into a, an unknown condition and the signal would have to propagate all the way down to the core ASIC and then it would send back a signal saying, please shut it down. And by then damage had been done and networks had wedged open. Uh-huh. So now yeah, it does feel like a bit of a catch up features that have possibly been in development for a while, but didn't, weren't so important, seem to have been all stacked into this chip. I think it's a real step forward, though. Yeah, so links in the show notes. If you want to get more details, we'll move on. Uh, There's a new startup called Graphiant has emerged from Stealth. The startup combines SD-WAN with a private network service. It's meant to help reduce routing complexity as organizations try to connect their branches, their cloud resources, their HQs, their data centers. Graphiant's founder and CEO, Khalid Raza, was co-founder of Viptela, which you may remember was an SD-WAN startup. It was eventually acquired by Cisco for $610 million back in 2017. Yeah, so this is the idea that networks are going to be everywhere and you probably don't know where they're going to be. So are they going to be in off-prem cloud, on-prem cloud? Are they going to be SaaS services? Uh, if you're going to connect international WANs together, you're not going to buy a router and use you know, the restricted MPLS services. You want to be able to control them all. You don't want to have to ring up the telco and say, my service in Singapore is out. What are you going to do about it? And they'll come back to you and say, we'll contact our service provider in Singapore and see what we can do. We'll get back to you within, you know, within the mandated time window. And they'll just ring you back to say, we don't know anything. Start the time clock again, you know. So a lot, there's a number of companies in this space. Graphene, I think, might have a bit of an advantage here in that it's come later rather than earlier, if that makes a weird sense. Um, remember, we've had um, lots of other companies in this space: Packet Fabric, um, Alkira. Uh, there's, um, you know, there's there's a half a dozen others that I can't bring to mind immediately. Uh, Ariaka and Cato Networks are doing kind of a similar mm-hmm. SD WAN plus private backbone kind of a play. Yeah, I'm not sure Graphene's running a private backbone uh, much. I think what they're doing is making sure that the the backbone's there so they can forward data across the internet. So they're not doing an optimized path flow, but they're saying, send the packets in here and then we'll be able to do metadata-based routing. I think the value that they've got though is that they've come in later when it was clear that it's not off-prem cloud to off-prem cloud. You know, it's not Google to AWS, Google to Azure. It's anywhere, anytime. It's SD-WAN Edge to Azure, to the private data center, to the user, to the whatever. And so I think there's a, a much more if the product is aligned there and the market is much more well-defined, they've got a better chance of success than I think others might have. 
Does that make sense? You can be too early in a market sometimes. I understand. Yeah, you could be too early in a market that's not ready to, you know, sort of turn over their traffic to, mm. you know, some uh, essentially a black box that just you hope the traffic comes out the other end where you wanted it to be. But that's essentially how I'm reading uh, Graphient. Mm. Well, I mean, you also want to be that one of their features that they claim is a differentiator is they can do B2B connectivity. So if I want to connect two companies together using the public WAN, I can do that. But it can also do it using a range of colo facilities. So you could take a pipe out of, you know, your local colo and, and do direct B2B connectivity, sort of a private circuit type thing. Sort of, again, running across, with, uh, Graphian has what they call a stateless core, um, yeah. where you just essentially, you get a box at one device, plug it into the stateless core, and then it comes out to a box on the other end uh, to what you want to connect to. That's right. And that ability to have one mode of con connecting or operating all of those networks is very valuable. So instead of having to learn how to AWS network or how do I operate an Equinox POC to a mega port POP and have to deal with this kind of brings them all together or unifies them. And if you've got that problem, this is this is a potential way to solve that. Yep. Uh, and the branch device does uh, what they're offering is a Graphient software running on essentially commercial off-the-shelf hardware. Um, and it does give you the sort of table stakes SD-WAN features of I can use multiple circuits, I can get real-time failover, and I can do application-based networking. So, you know, uh, send these uh, kinds of applications over link A and these kinds over link B based on performance and switch them as necessary. Mm. So it's a sign, I think it's a sign that there's more demand in this market before the companies that were, you know, operating this were just a few, it was limited and there was a lot of companies sort of you know, around the edge. <laughs> but I think it's becoming clear that this there is a market here and we'll see if it works out that it actually grows to something critical. It's certainly not something that your mainstream network providers, you know, the networking vendors are doing today, they're still trying to sell routers and switches. And I do believe that this is the long-term trend going forward. And so if you want to be an early adopter, maybe we're talking to them. Yeah, it's interesting because we've been talking about SD-WAN for such a long time that there is still an appetite for new sort of twists uh, on the approach. So yeah, I'm curious to see where Graphene yeah. sort of uh, falls out in the space. Yeah, it is the logical progression of SD-WAN in that connectivity anywhere. It's not just WAN replacement. It's really any to any. Yeah, we'll see what happens with Graphene, this, this approach with the stateless core. Uh, I think their their primary value proposition is we make uh, having to connect all of your different uh, areas together, your branch networks, your HQ, your data centers, your colos, your cloud access. We'll, we'll try to make that easier for you by running it all across our stateless core where you don't have to worry about doing the routing. We'll handle it for you. Hmm. All right, uh, links in the show notes for more details. We'll move on. Uh, the threat intelligence company Mandiant says it's likely that an Iranian-backed hacker group targeted the Albanian government with ransomware attacks to disrupt government operations. And Greg, you flagged this as a, as a note about the uh, a more general statement about uh, cybersecurity. <laughs> we know my oft-held thesis that cybersecurity doesn't matter. We need to do enough of it to justify, you know, if something goes wrong that we get caught out. Uh, and a lapse in cybersecurity, it generally has very few short or long-term consequences. People just go like, oh, that's very sad. What a shame. Uh, and moving on, you know, <laughs> so it's like uh, that sort of thing. So in, in the same way that, you know, when a company has a good or a bad CEO, it generally doesn't make much difference, uh, you know, unless they're spectacularly bad or somebody, you know, somehow something that they do actually catches the attention of the market or the press, right, where something goes. You know, but generally, a bad CEO is not able to do too much damage. And um, it, so in the same sort of way, that's where I am with secure, cybersecurity now. A lot of companies are investing in cybersecurity, and I'm never quite sure if they're just coming off a very low base, that is, 
there's never, they just haven't spent much on cybersecurity. That's my operational theory. There just isn't much security being applied over the last three decades. And so there's plenty of room for the market to catch up. But in this case, an Iranian uh, government body did a, performed a cyber attack on Albania, which is a country in Europe. It's a former Soviet Republic. Uh, we don't really understand why, but it's potentially related to the Ukraine war where Russia has asked Iran to help. Now, that's not necessarily certain, but it appears that in the political environment here that Albania has then responded by completely banning everything to do with Iran. <laughs> now, Iran, of course, is under massive sanctions and so forth, but there is a very, very strong political response here, and it sets a precedent, a global precedent for cyber attacks at the country level, at uh -huh. the you know at the international level, to have serious consequences. And in the same way that in a court of law when, you know, they set precedents in law by reading it a particular way, this sets a precedent for if somebody was to, you know, a, a cyber attack that is directly attributable or capable of being attributed, that's not always true. And in this case, the report comes from Mandiant. We could start to see some really real strategic changes in the nature of the internet. So if you start seeing things like, imagine what would happen if uh, Iran suddenly attacked the UK and so the UK responded by shutting Iran off from the internet and started to make political moves to say all internet connections to Iran must be removed and applying sanctions. You know, you're, you're really talking about something far more serious than what we have today or, or change in how cybersecurity goes. So I think it's a geopolitical thing, but it is also setting a precedent in this space and that's what's worth noting, I think, for now. Yeah, one thing that worries me is you know the vulnerability uh, of governments to cyber intrusions. I mean, it's it's bad in the commercial space. It's probably worse in the government sector. And I, you know, if a, a U.S. adversary decided to you know wanted to inflict harm, they could you know send ran get a ransomware attack launched against say the Social Security Administration, which would cause all kinds of chaos and problems. So yeah, this is mm -hmm. a significant issue. Yeah, I, I think we're headed down a path of people are starting to take cybersecurity more seriously. This is a decade-long, decades-long journey. Government yes. departments have usually had poor security yep. and relied on legal repercussions. <laughs> you know, right. don't hack the government because they've got the secret services who'll come and take you down. Right. So, right. Uh, I think that's changing. So, I think so. All right, moving on. Uh, here's a bit of good news on the humans versus ISPs front. A group of internet service providers have walked away from challenging a privacy law in the U.S. state of Maine that stopped telcos from, quote, using, disclosing, or selling, or providing access to customers' personal information, end quote, unless the customer opts into such an agreement. So essentially the law said, hey, uh, ISPs, if you want to sell customer information, you have to get those customers to opt in. You just can't do it automatically or provide opt-out. Uh, when Maine passed the law, a group of telecom industry associations sued the state, claiming, among other things, that the law violated their First Amendment rights. I don't really see how they could make that argument. And a federal judge rejected that argument. Back in 2022, uh, legal wrangling continued, but the ISPs have finally walked away from trying to fight this law. So uh, how exactly a company gets First Amendment rights protection from the government interfering is that, I mean, that's fairly imaginative. Um, I'm sure that in the eyes of the law, I have a first get, amendment right to sell your data. I, yeah, that's right. To do yeah. whatever I want. <laughs> so, you know, you shouldn't tell one. me how to run my business, right? <laughs> yeah. I guess that's the angle. Um, I guess I wanted to leave aside the privacy angle this time because I think we, we possibly talk too much about it. And for some people it matters and others it don't. But what I did want to think about is the impact of this. Let's say that telcos abandon attempts to build a business around surveillance and data harvesting, mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Does the loss of that revenue have impacts on their business? Do they need that revenue to survive? Or were they just looking for, you know, icing on the cake? 
you know, mm-hmm. just make more profit because profit's good and unbridled capitalism and, and you know, customer abuse is what telcos have done for time immemorial, right? Right, right? Keep in mind they're losing money from MPLS services as that, you know, those um, private networks with limited access and reach and the internet starting to dominate bandwidth and, you know, the, the, the modern generation of telco hardware is all about reducing the cost of those networks while speeding them up. So reducing the cost of the operation and clocking up to 400, 800, 1.2 terabits per second types of speeds while using software to reduce the cost of operations and have more, more nodes, more points, but at the same cost point. And so that, you know, do, does selling data, losing the ability to make revenue out of this, make networks simpler and reliable. So if the network becomes less complicated and has less in it, like they have to put all this infrastructure in the network to capture all that data. Right. And that all costs a lot of money mm-hmm. and adds complexity to the network. We just talked about this in the Trident 4 chipset, right? This chip has a feature and if you use it, you have to pay licenses to Broadcom, you have to add memory and you have to have a high power thing. But if they just got back to making networks simpler and more reliable, focused on better operations and just focusing on their core activities, would that be good for customers? And, you know, is it the end of the world if telcos don't get to do services? I don't know. I mean, it's a perpetual question. Uh, I you, you raise a good point. Could the lack of revenue hurt uh, ISP's ability to be profitable and run a profitable organization? I don't think so because they essentially have, you know, quasi-monopolies in the U.S. so they can extract high prices mm. from customers. Uh, so I think this uh, information gathering was icing on the cake, as you said. Uh, mm. So I, I, I think generally what Americans want and I think what most people want when it comes to broadband connection is cheap, fast pipes and ISPs don't want to be in that business because it doesn't satisfy Wall Street's demand for, you know, continual growth. Mm. It, it's interesting because it's a lot like the car industry to to drag out a sort of a metaphorical situation. Cars used to be very much sold on my car has metallic paint and look at the feel and the wheels and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And the next generation of electric cars will largely be commoditized. That is, they'll have the same drivetrain, mm-hmm. the same battery pack. The only thing that looks different will be these, you know, the quality of the fittings, the frame, you know, the body frame, the the type of the curves and the shape of the exterior, and the type of fit out inside seats, steering wheels, entertainment systems, and so forth. Right. So you know, you could say that that is the direction. There is some room for, you know, service enhancement or meeting the customer, but much less than it was before because the the underlying system, the underlying technology has changed. But I also think the interesting thing to consider here is that if the American government, like Maine, not a particularly large place, I don't normally hear the word Maine talked about much. It's a, it's a small believe. state in the Northeast, yeah. yeah. So it, that's not necessarily sign- significant in terms of does it change the whole of American policy, but sometimes one state can make a law and it actually has impacts everywhere. Uh, yes. Again, coming back to precedent setting, uh, California might look at this and say, well, if it's good enough for Maine, it's good enough for us. I believe and, California <laughs> has a similar law, but it's the customers have to opt out as opposed to customers opt in so that yeah. Maine's is stronger. And I would love to see if California goes that way, then essentially the rest of the U.S. goes that way because companies that want to yeah. work in California will just be like, fine, we'll follow what California says. Yeah. I just wonder if the, if the, if the American government system's more you know, federally, like right across the board, actually stop doing this. Is there enough market to even develop data harvesting technology that telcos can generate? Mm-hmm. So, you know, yes, we know Verizon and AT&T are doing that today, selling customer data in the mobile networks, which Maine can't legislate for because they're not um, under the control of state governments. They're federally controlled. But if if we see some sort of massive transition here, that market might disappear and the vendors then have to do de- 
you know, pivot into something else because that there's just not enough of a market for them to justify their existence. Lots to think about. Uh, and again, yeah. links in the show notes if you want to go think about it for yourself. Uh, quick break to tell you about our sponsor, IP Fabric. You know you want to automate your network, one that expertly matches your intent, one that allows you to see problems before they happen. And you've put in the work, you've studied programming and Ansible, you built a lab, you tested scripts and playlists, but your network of networks is complex, unconstrained, and diverse. To automate it effectively, you need structured data representing its configuration and state end-to-end. IP Fabric recently sponsored an EMEA research report discussing the future of DC network automation, and it revealed that more than half of organizations that use manual data gathering feel it undermines their automation efforts. That's where IP Fabric comes in. IP Fabric puts the right data in the hands of the people who need it. So when an engineer has everything they need to execute a change right in front of them, it leads to high quality work with a quick turnaround time. You can download this report now for free at ipfabric.io slash packet pushers and start learning from the best. And speaking of free, the first 10 to download the report at this link will be sent a little something from the team at IP Fabric to help you as you brainstorm your network automation strategy. So head on over to ipfabric.io slash packet pushers to get the free report. That's ipfabric.io slash packet pushers. Back to the news. Data center switch sales grew 20% globally in the second quarter of 2022, according to a report from the Delora Group, and growth occurred across all segments, including large enterprise, cloud service providers, and telcos with record revenues in each segment. Yeah, so we, uh, I think one of the things that you and I both do is we look at Ethernet switch sales as sort of barometer of how networking is going. Mm-hmm. And we look at these reports, and today we've actually uh, looking at both Deloro and IDC, who both posted real results. And both of those um, analyst companies focus on numbers. So they go out and do uh, market research to try and sample how much was sold and how much was purchased and try and make decisions about what the growth weights were. Um, I think the part here is that data center and switch sales grew 20% globally. Why is that? Why, what, what drove that? And I, I'm beginning to think most of the sales went to off-prem clouds. And here's my hypothesis, Drew. So jump in anytime you think I'm being an idiot. But <laughs> you remember when we had COVID and it led to a demand spike, so everybody raced into the cloud, and then we had supply chain problems. I think COVID and the supply chain basically led to a lot of spending being put on hold. Mm-hmm. Now, that's um, we have also seen, uh, it is worth noting with these numbers, that these are based on revenue, not port sales, so not right. volume. And we know that most of the companies involved in networking have increased the prices on their <laughs> on their equipment by anywhere from 10 to 35%. So it's Cisco at the top end at 35% and so on down into the other spaces. So you would expect to see a pretty substantial growth by revenue just based on the fact that these companies have increased their prices. But at the same time, I think we're now, the supply chain is now definitely starting to work. The chip makers are reporting that forward orders for chips are slowing and they've got plenty of capacity coming up at the end of 2023. Mm-hmm. Plenty? A lot. Sufficient, shall we say. Sufficient. Um, and so instead of slowing the build out of new data center facilities, enterprises and off-prem cloud companies um, are now actually moving to rebuild, start the building. So instead of being on slowing the build out, optimizing for efficiency, delaying the upgrades, sweating the assets a bit harder for the last, say, I don't know, two years, now's the time to kick it off and we're seeing a bit of an increase here. But I think much more of this is actually due to the lift in prices that vendors are taking on board um, because they can. Right. Yes, it's possible that we're not looking at an increase necessarily in ports, but just an increase in the price of the devices themselves. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. it's not a surprise to me that cloud service providers drove growth. We know that with uh, the pandemic, lots of businesses turned to cloud services because that's where all the consumers were headed as well. 
Uh, I, I am surprised to see that inter, uh, enterprise revenue grew for switch sales. Um, maybe folks were deciding, okay, this is a good time to go in and start refreshing things while things are quiet uh, in the, the campus environments. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, a lot of I've heard a few people in our Slack channel. So if you ever want to join our Slack channel, go on over to packetpushes.net slash Slack, and it'll show you how if you want to sign up and join in the conversation. We have actually declared it a vendor free vendor marketing free zone. <laughs> if anybody performs any sort of acts of marketing on you, they'll be uh, encouraged to take that somewhere else, shall we say? Yes. Um, so I do feel like this is not. You might sit there and say, like for example, um, IIDC says Arista got. 55% growth in their sales. That's a lot of growth. So yes, Arista um, increased their prices. They told their shareholders they were going to do that. They justified the prices in terms of increased supply chain costs, freight. They had to do a lot of expediting, had to place a lot of forward orders for equipment to make sure that they had sufficient in stock to build equipment. But you know, by comparison, HP, HP Aruba, Ethernet switch revenues declined 5.5% in the quarter. Uh, we saw Huawei go up 9.4% and Cisco only increased by 10%. So that would suggest that, you know, the, the baseline for price increases is increasing by 10% because that's inflation and increased charges to customers. And really the only people who walked away with the price, you know, with growth here is Arista significantly more. They also took market share. Yeah, they took a little bit yeah, of market share, although Cisco still sits at the top. But I think Cisco is essentially holding on to what they have while Arista is taking new share. Yeah, I suspect so. And also, Arista's doing well to tag into new markets like off-prem clouds, mega scale data center owners, and so forth. Yeah. Links in the show notes if you want to read the data for yourself. Uh, Apple's new iPhone 14 is going to be able to send emergency text messages via satellite starting in November of 2022. The service is going to be free for two years. Apple also announced that a company called Global Star as its partner for the satellite messaging feature, and Apple plans to spend $450 million of its own dollars on satellite infrastructure. I did not have space networking from a telephone for 2022. Was that on your bingo card? It was Drew? not. It was not. <laughs> it was not. <laughs> this, is, this is a standout. Now, we talked about this two weeks ago when T-Mobile and Starlink slash SpaceX got on stage and said, we're going to do this. That, that was absolutely, um, I think we flagged at the time that Apple was expected to announce this this week. Uh, not only have they announced it, it's actually shipping uh, by the end of the year, I think, or back to ship with the phone ship. Right. And yeah, it's going to be a software upgrade in the new iPhone 14, and Apple said the service will start in November of this year. So it's actually happening. Yeah. So that's not a future. That's not a right. when we get there or when we design the satellite. Like in the case of Starlink, they actually have to build the satellites and then launch them. It's not going to work with their existing satellites. And uh, Starlink doesn't have access to Spectrum. It needs telco partners to do that. So it needs to partner with companies like Timo, T-Mobile in the US, and it's mm -hmm. got to find partners everywhere else in the world who want to allocate spectrum so that their satellites can keep, you know, like it's it, the Starlink thing is like a bit of a pipe dream compared to what Apple's done here. And if you watch the Apple announcement, they did a great job of showing that, uh, that the, they must be deploying the antenna that is able to, uh, to the satellite and it must be aligned. So you must be outside, not, not undercover, not inside a building, but they also give you the ability to focus it on the satellite. Did you see that bit? I didn't see it. No. Yeah, they give you a little app on the phone and it says, no, angle it over, angle it back, left, right, <laughs> turn around, so that you can actually point the, the phone to the satellite to get the best possible signal. Interesting. And then you can send a text message and it'll take anything from 
seconds to 15 minutes to be able to send a test message. Now, you remember here, you're holding a handheld device with no highly directional specialized boost antenna to reach a satellite mm-hmm. a long way away. Now, the satellite partner for Apple, they didn't talk about it in the announcement at all, is Global Star. And it's really interesting, but Global Star is. Um, I've been sort of digging into what they get, what investors get out of this, and they're not getting much. They're only getting about two hundred million a year out of Apple for this service, which is doesn't feel right. Do you know, you think it'd be worth more than two hundred million? Do you think? I mean, my feeling is that Apple is, is using this as sort of a toe in the water uh, approach to satellite connectivity. The fact that it is just a, an emergency service, it's not regular, uh, you mm. know, con- connectivity. It's if you're stuck in the middle of nowhere, you could still send an emergency help me message. Um, mm. So that seems like a reasonable amount of investment for Apple to sort of play with satellite connectivity. Okay. I can go. With, yeah, I think I could go, go with that. that. <laughs> I think I could. No, I think I, I think that's a viable angle. That's one way to look at it. Um, other analysts that I've read are going a slightly different way. They think this is just first and that maybe Apple's going to start building its own uh, satellite network to do this to be viable. So one of the analysts says, um, you know, what's most interesting is how little Apple is paying total revenues of 185 to 230 million in 2023. Pay that's what Global's total Global Star's total revenues are. Right. And Apple is paying around 70 million to 110 million to access that network of the Global Star network. I think the concern might be that if people start using this, does Global Star have enough satellites? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because I read an article in Reuters that said Global Star, in addition to getting that four hundred and fifty million in investment from Apple, is also taking on new debt to build out new satellites and new infrastructure mm-hmm. to support the service. So it does seem like Apple's yeah. saying, you know, we're going to partner with Global Star, but do it, you know, very carefully and and very uh, judiciously on our end to see what they can actually pull off. Uh, I think. Yeah. And the the question is, why isn't Apple putting a ring on it? Why not just buy them? <laughs> like, like, I mean, yeah, uh, Apple's got billions and billions and billions yeah, of dollars. Like the idea that, that could, Apple yeah. would stump up a billion or two billion just to own the satellite network and buy a running concern, just that's pocket change for them, surely. You know, like, right. And, right. And, and and why not, right? <laughs> because <laughs> Global Star's got all the people, they might need to be Appleized to get them moving at speed or whatever, mm-hmm. but they've got all the rights to spectrum and it would take, Apple, you know, if Apple was to try and bootstrap that sort of business, they would have to wait two decades before they could get access to those licenses, Right. you know, in the open market, because those uh, spectrum auctions only happen rarely. So, and even if they do it in the US, they've still got to do it in every other country in the world. So that's going to be fun. There must be some long-term game here. Do they start asking governments to put out emergency spectrum that can be used by mobile phones for this? Do they start uh, working in the UN? Lots to happen. I think there'll be lots to unfold here. So rather than waste time here, we should pick up the pace and let people go. All Do right. some real work. Moving on. Uh, the U.S. state of Virginia, uh, you may not have known this, but it accounts for about the third of overall hyperscale data center capacity in the United States. That is, in your, in Virginia, there is more data center capacity than in Europe or China. Uh, this is according to data from the research outfit Synergy Research Group. Uh, and Greg, you brought this up to highlight, you know, sort of geographical risks when thinking about your cloud. Yeah. Now, Virginia is not very big either, right? No. Or is it? It's not. No? No. As uh, you know, it's definitely smaller than Texas, California, other states in the U.S. Yeah, it's not a big state. So somebody, you know, some sort of weather event or some sort of political, you know, terrorist event um, could actually take out a significant capacity, (laughs) significant amount of the global computing capacity. Uh, (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. If you're Uh looking to disrupt the U.S. economy, Virginia is your target. 
<laughs> That's right. You know, I just find it interesting that the the quote in the article, which you know, no reason to disbelieve it, Virginia has more far more hyperscale data center capacity than either China or the whole continent of Europe. It's quite stunning. Um, so. Yeah. If, yeah, I think the the thing here is that if you're an enterprise company and you're using resources in that part of the world, uh, you should add to your risk register that the the fine that weather and and various you know environmental considerations for the Virginia area should be on your roadmap because if they're disrupted, so you so might you be. That was what I was thinking. Right. I, unlike other parts of the U.S., I don't think Virginia is prone to things like tornadoes and so on, but mm. fire, flooding, and certainly power issues could also be a problem, yes. Yeah. And this is no different to your own data center, right? Just because you gave the data center to someone else doesn't mean the risk of the, da- the physical data centers themselves are not your problem anymore. Although, you know, why not? Let's just get, let's, at the end of the day, we don't get paid extra to really worry about these things. You just want to go home and do something else. But um, and ultimately, it was Virginia because in the early days, Virginia had um, plenty of spare power. It's got lakes, hydro, if I remember hydro, rightly. Hydro, yes, huh? Yes, and so they buy like entire hydro plants to run the data centers there. And also at the time, Virginia was a place that was fairly well supported by telcos, in terms of high connection bandwidth. Now these days, of course, because the data centers are there, there's bandwidth there. Mm-hmm. You know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? I'm not really sure. <laughs> Both probably, but. Um, so now, so now it's really just about power and tax breaks. The Virginian government is actually giving a lot of tax breaks to companies. Although I know I did in the research start to note that uh, voters in Virginia are saying stop giving them tax breaks. But uh, that's a different story. <laughs> Eventually, the tax breaks come to an end, especially once you've yeah. built that data center at the sunk cost. You might as well start paying tax. That's right. There is nothing a tech company likes better than free money from a government. So, <laughs> classic <laughs> Sorry, strategy. Incentives, incentives, incentives. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That wraps up the news. Uh, Thanks for listening. We don't have a Tech Bytes today, so we'll let you go. But before we do, Greg, where can folks find you online if they want more? Uh, I'm at Twitter on at Ethereum Mind. I'm trying to tweet more, although I've had a a, a chopped up sort of a week. I'm uh, changing the where I work and and the way I work. So I've been getting settled into a new rhythm pattern, but I should be back in action over the next week where you can find me um, emitting various bits and pieces of stuff as I do my research during the week. And often I'm uh, sort of flaring out ideas to, to get a take. And, and if you respond, then I can often take them forward into the show. So maybe you want to join me there at Ethereal Mind on Twitter. Uh, I'm Drew underscore CM uh, on Twitter, and I'm blogging at packetpushers.net. Uh, thanks to uh, our sponsor for today, and thank you for listening. If you like this episode, check out everything else we've got over at packetpushers.net.